Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the North Carolina Real Estate Show. I'm Tiffany Weber. I am an attorney in Mooresville, North Carolina at Thomas & Weber. And today I'm joined by a special guest, Erica Henson. She's also an attorney at Thomas & Weber. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, everybody. This is Erica. And like Tiffany said, I'm an attorney here at Thomas & Weber working alongside Tiffany. I enjoy getting to know the clients here in every closing. And outside of work, I enjoy spending time with my family. And right now we don't have any animals, but I'm a big dog person. So yeah, I can to confirm all those things are true. <laughs> She's <laughs> telling the truth about all of it. Today, our topic and the reason why Erica is such a good guest to have on the show today is we're going to talk about common loan documents. And I know that this is, you know, as an agent, you are not signing the loan documents, but we've talked before on the show about how you are the trusted guide to your to your client. So they've been working with you for months up to a year or longer, who knows. So by the time they get to the closing table, yes, we're the attorney, we represent the buyer, but they just met us. So if they've got an agent who is the person that they've looked to for guidance and really trust, then if you as an agent understand these loan documents, you will have a better chance of understanding when something's not quite right. Or if um, perhaps the attorney that you are with explains it differently than your your client may understand. So you know your client better than we do in a lot of cases. So if you know the attorney's explaining something and you say, could you try it a different way? We're not going to be offended because everybody understands things a little bit differently. So let's kick it off with what I think are the two most important loan documents, the note and the deed of trust. Erica, what is the note? The note is your client's promise to repay the loan. Exactly. Yeah, there's, it's really so simple. And I think um, Eric and I probably explain loan documents similarly in closings because I just tell clients, this is your promise to pay the money back. It's that simple. It's a, usually no more than three or four pages. It's more to the point with your loan amount, your interest rate, and then your principal and interest portion of your payment. It does not include, you know, clients will sometimes see the payment amount on the face of the note and say, I thought my payment was XYZ. And it's different because your escrow account and any escrowed amounts are not shown on the face of the note because those things can change. The note has to be stagnant or has to be static, I should say. So the note's only going to show you what is not going to change. Now, the deed of trust, we usually talk about immediately after the note. And the deed of trust is, I call it the if you don't pay, you don't stay document. But Erica, how do you explain it? I tell the client, this is how the lender secures your payment. They're using your house as collateral to make sure that you pay. And if you don't, then they take your house. You don't pay, you don't stay. Yep. Simple as that. Yeah, so it's the instrument that gives the lender the right to foreclose on the property if they're not being paid back. And it's longer, and I sometimes joke that it also says you can't have a meth lab. <laughs> it does say that, not specifically meth, but um, there's all kinds of guidelines in there that you have to follow. And this is the thing that requires you to repay the lender when you sell the property, too. I cannot believe how many sellers there are that don't understand they have to pay off their loan when they sell the property. I mean, it truly boggles the mind. But this instrument is why you have to sell, or when you sell the property, you have to pay off that loan. So your lender will be paid back one way or another. Now, there are some exhibits or riders to that document, commonly uh, I'd say around here, the most common one is the PUD rider or the planned unit development rider. And that one 
really it applies when you've got one of these big developments that has all these restrictions. And in North Carolina, HOAs can put liens on properties that could uh, result in foreclosure. Well, lender doesn't like not being first. They want to be first in line. So that rider is essentially the client agreeing to keep up with any dues they have, not get any fines. If they do get fines, don't let them turn into liens and so on and so forth. Now you get questions about that one a lot, right? Yes, I do. And so I think Tiffany explained it well, but basically what I tell the clients is this is your promise to keep up to date and up to speed with all of your HOA requirements so that the HOA cannot foreclose, you know, in front of the lender. The lender is doing this as protection to themselves. Once I explain it that way, they're they're okay with it. But prior to that, they kind of wonder what what is this addition to, to the deed of trust? Yep. And there can be other ones too. Um, more common than, you know, if you have a rental property, there's going to be a family rider or an assignment of rents, which lets the lender uh, say they have to foreclose and you've got a tenant in possession and allows the lender to just start accepting the rent payments. It's maybe a little more detailed than that, but that's kind of the high level of it. And then there can be riders for if you have a rural occupancy, there's all kinds that can go, but the most common ones are the PUD rider and probably the investment property rider. Now, before, usually before we go over the note and deed of trust in our closings, we talk about the payment letter. That one can stress some people out because they're seeing the, the number that they're going to have to pay every single month. What does the payment letter tell you? Yeah, so the payment letter tells you when your first payment is due and in what amount you owe to the lender. And I also like to explain it, if you don't have some type of electronic payment set up or another way to pay your lender as of that first due date, they usually give you an address or some type of payment coupons with that first payment letter where you can submit your payment to. So you can't really use the excuse that you don't know where to send it to in the event you don't have an electronic payment set up. Exactly. That's why you get that letter. <laughs> They're going to make sure you know where to pay them. That's very important to your lender and also very important to you if you want to keep your house, you know, i.e. If you, if you don't pay, you don't stay. <laughs> so the payment letter is really, for most lenders, it's just one page unless they add on those payment coupons. And almost every time I'm telling a client, hey, this is how you can pay if you don't get your statement or another way. Clients get closing amnesia or they only hear the part that they are either worried about or what they wanted to hear. So they follow it up with, what do you mean I can't pay online? <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> well, you may not. It depends on your lender. Maybe you can't, but you probably can. And they're going to send you more information. But this is your backup plan. Mm -hmm. This so, is your fallback. Yeah. You always are going to have a way to pay. You can never tell the lender I didn't know. After the note and the deed of trust and the payment letter, actually, let me skip back in time a little bit because there is a very important document that we've done a whole episode on, so we won't go into every little bit of it. But the closing disclosure, it's the thing that tells you all the numbers associated with your closing. Now, the closing disclosure, there are several in the closing. There's a seller's closing disclosure, which is only seller numbers. There's a buyer's closing disclosure, which is only the buyer's numbers. And then in our office, we use something called an ALTA settlement statement. So it's a combined statement. ALTA stands for American Land Title Association. They're the group that put out the form. So we kind of call it by their name. Um, but the closing disclosure, Erica, what are the important things you like to tell the client about the closing disclosure? Yes. Yeah, so usually a lot of the important information is right on the first page. It's the loan amount, the interest rate 
of the loan and then what the monthly payment will look like um, for the lifetime of the loan. Or sometimes they split it up, you know, years one through 10 might have a certain payment and 10 through 30. So it really goes over um, what the monthly payment will look like. At the bottom of the first page, you, uh, the client will see their total closing costs and then the total cash to close the deal or the transaction. Mm -hmm. um, so on the first page, those are the most important things. And then in the subsequent pages of the CD, They'll see detailed breakdown of the closing costs and then some important lender information like what the terms of the loan are, if they are more than 15 days late, what the late payment is, what they'll pay over the lifetime of the loan if they make no advance payments. Um, so a lot of different details about the loan itself um, in the back pages of the document. Yeah, that's I mean, I could not have put it any better. <laughs> you hit all the important stuff. Now, you mentioned on the first page, sometimes it's broken down for your payment, like years one through 10, and then years after, you know, after that 10 through 30. And the your payment can change for a couple of different reasons, right? So one would be if you have adjustable interest rate. So then you would see several different payments based on, uh, or a range of payments based on what the interest rate adjusts to. But most often it's because, you know, a client will have PMI and that PMI goes away at a certain point. So for most lenders, that's 80% loan to value. Uh, your, your lender will give you a document telling you what that is, but you'll see what your payment will become once you have no more PMI. You know, sometimes people will say, well, which one is my payment? The one that starts at year one. <laughs> so that's the one that you're paying right now, the one that's on your payment letter. Don't just look for the lowest one and say, I'll pick that one. <laughs> Now, Eric, you make a good point. Before we even started recording, you mentioned that when we have multiple documents showing the financials, like mm -hmm. the closing disclosure, that's only the buyer's closing disclosure. We also have that Alta combined settlement statement I mentioned. Why do we have more than one? Yeah, so the way I like to look at it is it's a system of checks and balances. So the Alta is, like Tiffany said, is a combined statement with both the seller and the buyer's information, whereas the CD is either specific to the buyer or the seller. But when you look at all of those documents combined, they all should sum up to the same exact amount. So the buyer's um, cash to close or closing costs should match exactly from the, the closing disclosure and the Alta. And the same is true for the seller. So it's a good way of calculating the financials of the transaction in two different ways and then making sure that the numbers match. If they don't match, then chances are we have a problem somewhere. So mm -hmm. it's a great, um, great way to foolproof the transaction. Yes, I like that explanation. And also the, you know, the seller doesn't need to know the buyer's interest rate or their payment amount or what their fee is if they pay late and all that mm -hmm. stuff. So uh, there's no need for the seller to sign on or review the buyer's closing disclosure. So the Alta is a way for, like Erica said, checks and balances. We make sure all the numbers match up. If you've listened to the prior episode going into detail on the breakdown of all these different settlement statements, then you know the Alta is a good place for the agent to make sure they're getting paid the right amount. <laughs> so always check the Alta to make sure, one, that you're getting paid the right amount that you were um, promised that you would be paid in the transaction, but also to make sure that any agreements between the parties, um, like seller paid closing costs or invoices the seller agreed to pay, show up where they're supposed to. That's not going to be on the buyer's closing disclosure. A seller paid invoice doesn't affect the buyer's bottom line, so it won't be on that buyer CD. So that's another reason why we have more than one. All right, so moving on to the escrow account disclosure. How do you explain this one? Yeah, so the escrow account, I explain it as um, 
an accounting of the first 12 months of the escrow account so that the buyer can see exactly what's going into the escrow account each and every month. And they can also see what is going out of the escrow account when their homeowner's insurance will be paid and when their property taxes will be paid. Some buyers, I would say, don't really understand how an escrow account works. So that disclosure really gives them an idea over the first 12 months of what is happening. And I think it gives them some clarity as to what's happening with their money and Mm -hmm. how the homeowner's insurance and the taxes will be paid. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. I see a lot of um, light bulbs going off when I go over this in closings because like you said, clients know that they have an escrow account. They don't really know what it means. They don't understand that it's kind of like a forced savings account for their expenses that, you know, if you don't have an escrow account, you still have to pay taxes and insurance. It's just you're, you may not be saving up for it throughout the year. And then you get your $3,000 tax bill and you're like, oh, shoot. <laughs> so the escrow account, you watch the account build up over time and then you watch the disbursements made. And there's another important thing on that disclosure the cushion amount. So there's a cushion in your escrow account because it can never be at zero. Your lender sets up the cushion. You fund the cushion in your closing. So that's explained in your closing disclosure how much money you're putting into your escrow account. If your lender has over escrowed, um, maybe they thought that the insurance was going to be $1,800 a year, but maybe you've shopped it and it actually ends up being $1,400 a year. Well, that will be settled up after the end of the first year. So your lender does an escrow account reconciliation and anything that you have overpaid gets returned to you. So you go kind of back to your cushion amount. Now, what about the amortization schedule? Oh, yeah. So sometimes this appears as maybe 15 pages in the loan loan package. Sometimes it's only the last page. Typically, I only share with the client the very last page, but I explain the document to them and let them know that they'll get a full disclosure of that schedule um, in in their loan package after they leave. But it is just what how their payments will be applied over the lifetime of the loan. So they can see, hey, in my first payment, this is how much is going to interest and this is how much is going to principal. And then over the lifetime of the loan, they can see how their money's being applied. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, this document can be a bit overwhelming to the client because it has a lot of numbers. And like I said, sometimes it's 15 pages long, but I try to break it down very simple to them. It's just how their money's being applied. Yeah, and that document if you're a buyer or as an agent, if your buyer says, how do I shorten this up by making extra payments? And also if you have a client that is inclined to make extra payments, then it would be important for you to know that the amortization schedule is going to change as soon as they do. The very first time you make an extra payment that wasn't accounted for in that schedule, then you got to throw that schedule in the trash. And I'm pretty sure lenders will just supply a new one at any point, but at this point, you can do it on your own. It might be faster to just do it yourself. <laughs> now, the amortization schedule, I'll do the same thing. I don't, I think it's kind of depressing to make a client <laughs> read every single page of the AM schedule, though I do have clients that have put it on their refrigerator and they mark it off every single month. Whew. That's willpower to yeah. look at it every month. <laughs> <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> no thank you. Now, this next one is interesting, and this one can kind of, Uh, Agents, if you're wanting to understand the loan documents better so your clients can feel more reassured when you're like, this is okay, this is normal, this is one you would do well to pay attention to, and it's a name affidavit. I don't know what it is about this document that kind of freaks people out a little bit, but when they see their name misspelled on a page 
They're worried, am I saying that I am this person? Not necessarily. So the name affidavit is a document that shows any names that the lender was able to find you by when they did their underwriting process. So that could be they pulled a credit report and your name was misspelled. Uh, For example, (laughs) I have one. My middle name is Ann, but someone somewhere thinks it's Teresa. So I was going to buy a car. Um, I wasn't even getting a loan for the car. So this is, I should have known better when they asked me for my social. I should have said, what do you need that for? But they never asked my middle name. So this guy just made something up. So he made up Teresa because he forgot to ask. He's like, oh, this won't matter. (laughs) Well, I was signing a name affidavit and it said Tiffany Teresa Weber. I'm like, that's not right. Well, I looked at my credit report and I saw, okay, that's what happened. Someone just made something up and now it's associated with my credit report. You know, those like the just from the inquiry or it could be misspellings. Misspellings are common, especially if maybe you have an unconventional name um, or a name that maybe has a conventional spelling, but yours is not spelled the way that most people spell it. It's not. Uh, unfortunately, it's all too common for you know people to not ask and just spell it however they want to spell sure. it. So it ends up on a list like this. So um, what's the longest list you've seen so far? Um, I've seen probably eight to 10, but someone who had been married multiple times or reverted back to their maiden name at one point in time. Um, you've probably seen way more than that, but the record is 28 that I've seen. Oh, wow! but I I would say for a long list that I would normally see is about eight to 10. You know, that's, that doesn't surprise me at all. So if someone says to me, oh my gosh, this is not me. Well, depending on your lender and depending on the way they set up the form, you may have an opportunity to write the phrase never known as. That's not, you know, I don't go by that. I've never been known by that. But again, it depends on the lender. So the way I like to tell clients is what we're trying to get at here is you're not necessarily saying I am all of these people. What you're saying is if your name is James and you prefer to go by Jim, you're still agreeing to be bound by your signature as James Smith. And that kind of helps them understand like, okay, yeah, I do go by Jim, but I can't sign my loan documents, Jim Smith. I got to sign a James Smith. So you're agreeing to be bound by the signature that you're signing on the documents. And I tell clients, like if any of these really bother you too much, like the misspellings, you have to remedy it through your credit report. You know, your lender's not going to be able to fix that. They can't make these go away. So you have to go through the the credit reporting channels to fix it. Uh, Have I ever told you about, so Ben Thomas, my late law partner, whenever I first started doing real estate with him, he went to Egypt for two weeks. He told me it was going to be like the most boring, like, you know, litigation's way more exciting than real estate. This is going to be easy (laughs) and boring. You're not even going to like it. And like maybe the second or third closing I'd ever done because of this name affidavit, I was sitting in the room and a husband found out his wife had been married before, but had never told oh, him. No. Yeah. And it was so awkward. awkward. <laughs> he, he came back and he said, that's never happened to me in 30 years. He only knows of one other attorney that's had a situation like that. Like you told me that this was going to be calm. <laughs> and like nothing <laughs> weird was going to happen. You just go off to Egypt for two weeks and like, all the, this drama happens. Oh no! They ended up buying the house, though. And you know, we get at the, the name affidavit, as you know, comes pretty late in the loan package. So we signed all the important stuff, and this guy's looking at his wife like, "Who are you?" Oh my gosh! I told them, "You guys have the conference room as long as you need it. Um, <laughs> I'm going to step out, let you guys talk." 
poke your head out when you're ready to do whatever it is you're going to do. So they were probably in there like an hour. And then they poked their head out and they were like, okay, we're ready to move forward. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. <laughs> I've seen them around town several times since though. So they're so, still married. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully you agents don't have any surprises like that one at the closing Ooh, table. I hope not. Cause that was not a blast. <laughs> I hope you never have that either. <laughs> I would not wish that on you. It was really awkward. Um, but that's been four years now, I think. So yeah, we're probably not very likely. It doesn't yeah. happen every day. Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> now the last one I have on my list and Erica, after this, you may have some more that you want to talk about. Um, but this actually is from your list, the errors and omissions document. What is it talking about? Yeah, so this document gives the lender the power or the ability to make changes to some of the documents. Maybe if the date has been written in incorrectly or some minor clerical errors that need to be corrected to make sure that the, the loan package is, is complete and it's correct. And sometimes clients kind of say, why does the lender need to make these corrections? Or what if they make a correction or change something that's material to the to the loan documents? And so I try to ease their fears by saying, I mean, the lenders are bound by ethical standards. So the chances that they would change a material term are very, very slim. And that's not and even actionable. The, yes. <laughs> yes. Your lender does that. You have a cause you of action a, against yes. this. <laughs> um, but the document is there in place because there are certain things that have to be correct on the documents in order for the funds to to come through and for the loan to be active. So it's just really making sure that in the event that something is a little bit off, like I said, with a date or something, then the lender can correct that. And the clients have signed a settlement agreement with us for our office up front, which allows our office to do something very similar. And so I think sometimes that's why clients also get a little apprehensive, like why why do I now have to do this for the lender as well? In case we miss something. In case there's, yeah. yeah, we've got a person whose whole job is to make sure that you dated everything and all that. But if she misses something, and I say she because every single person in our office is a she. So there's a 100% chance that it is she that is, that is working on it. Um, fitting that we're recording this on International Women's Day with our all-female office. Uh, so if she misses the fact that you didn't date one of the documents, then the lender can step in without you having to come back and redo everything. And like Erica said, this is not for interest rates. This is not for payment amounts. This is not for loan amounts. This is for, okay, the lender on one document type drive and it's road, things like that. Uh, it is not for changing the terms of your loan. It's just for making sure the documents are executed properly. And another reason why this matters is not just to get the loan funded, but consider that most lenders are in the business of selling their loans to investors and the investors want enforceable documents. So if those documents are missing dates or it says drive instead of road, if you stop making your payments and the lender needs to foreclose, that new investor needs to foreclose, they want documents that are right so that they're not going to be fought over as much in court. So that's kind of, you know, one, we want to make sure that the money is funded so you can buy, but also your lender cares because if they want to resell your loan to an investor, the documents have to be right. Now, are there any other documents that, like weird questions you get or, um, you know, you think an agent might want to understand better because their client might call them after and say, what is this? I can't think of any right off the top. I think the ones that we've caught out here are the are really the ones that, you know, cause a little bit of 
heartburn for for the buyers sometime. I mean, every lender has these little cats and dogs documents, if you will, um, but nothing that that I think alarms the buyer causes them any any heartburn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I agree with you, but I did just think of one more, and it's the it doesn't apply to every loan. It only applies when the buyer has PMI, and it's the document that explains when your PMI is scheduled to go away. Mm. So it tells you the percent loan to value that your lender is looking for, but it also gives you a date that you're scheduled to hit that, the the scheduled um, like 80%. But one thing I like to tell buyers about this is if they are the kind of people that like to make extra payments, they're going to reach that date earlier than the scheduled date. So I've personally had the experience where, especially before I was doing real estate law, I um, had a loan that had PMI. We paid extra. We were eligible to have PMI removed and we were not paying attention. So we continued to pay PMI for a year and a half longer than when by the time we finally realized, like, surely we've reached that 80%. Oh, long had long reached it. But we weren't paying attention. And you don't get that money back if you're not paying attention. So I always tell the buyers, if you're paying extra, pay attention. Call your servicer and say, hey, I've reached the date. I've reached the 80% faster than was originally scheduled. What do we do now? And they'll help you through it. But uh, it's good to have like, okay, in 2025, PMI is going away. So if I'm paying extra, that means it's going to be sometime before 2025. So I need to be paying attention. Uh, But otherwise, I don't have anything else either. You know, I think it's a good point to mention every lender's package is different. And sometimes they have documents that are redundant. And sometimes they'll send duplicates of documents. And my policy is if it has a barcode, if they send it three times, I'm sending it back three times because I don't know how to read those barcodes and I don't know what they're looking for. They might need one original for them. They might need one original for the investor. I don't know. So I'm going to have you sign them as long as they don't have any weird terms or anything like that. Another thing I want to point out too, and agents, I know I know you guys know this or probably know this. I'm, I'm sure most of you do. These documents in a residential transaction are generally non-negotiable. There's not, you know, you you can negotiate the loan terms like the rate and all of that stuff up front, but the contents of the document, if you have a client that thinks they're going to redline the loan documents in the closing and still close that day, no, they're not. (laughs) So (laughs) prep your clients about that beforehand. You know, these documents have been vetted by attorneys all over the country, but especially all the attorneys in North Carolina. Uh, We're very familiar with these. If we see anything that looks weird... We're going to know it looks weird, and we're going to talk to the lender about it. But in general, it's a standardized loan package, and know your client will not be able to redline it. Yeah, and I would also say, you know, encourage your clients to look at their loan information before they come to closing. Mm -hmm. Because I think clients who have already looked at their closing disclosure form um, or the details of their loan up front before they arrive, they're much more confident in their transaction and what Mm -hmm. they are agreeing to. Whereas clients who haven't maybe done enough well, haven't done as much due diligence or contacted their lender or their broker, they're a little uneasy about some of the documents. Mm-hmm. That's where I find that that we have to explain the most. So I would say encourage them to to look through everything that their lender is sending them so that they're confident in what they're signing when they get to the closing table. Completely agree with that. That That's the perfect way to end it. <laughs> <laughs> so this episode has been all about understanding the common loan documents. Again, agents, I know you're not signing these. <laughs> Please don't ever try to sign them for your clients. Um, but if you understand them, then you 
will do a you will do a better job guiding your clients if you understand these documents because again they're looking to you they trust you they've got this established relationship with you and you're their person for lack of a better way to explain it so we want you to understand them better than your clients because they're looking to you for the answers so hopefully that was helpful. Uh, thank you, Erica, for joining me. You did a great job explaining everything. We stole her from corporate America recently, and uh, I think she was made for this, <laughs> even if she doesn't know it yet. All right, guys, we will catch you on the next episode of the North Carolina Real Estate Show.